The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Hey, it's Jesse coming at you with a special bonus episode. You know, years ago when I left magazine writing for technology, the very last story that I put my heart and soul into was a profile of an incredibly compelling and important woman in artificial intelligence. Her name is Dr. Fei-Fei Li, and you've probably heard her before if you've listened to the show, because that first season of Hello Monday, I actually invited her to come onto the show and talk to us about artificial intelligence. Fei-Fei did come on the show. It was a great and helpful episode that both described artificial intelligence in the state we are now, and also began to map out some of the opportunities that all of us have. And Fei-Fei talked about her incredible career. Well, this month, Fei-Fei releases a book, a memoir in part, and also a map for all of us who care a lot about what's happening with AI. The book is called The Worlds I See, Curiosity, Exploration, and Discovery at the Dawn of AI. And so to mark the publication of the book, and because I just really love this episode and I think it continues to hold up to be so helpful, I bring you a conversation with Fei-Fei Li. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, a show where I investigate the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. Last year, I got to test drive a self-driving car, which of course means that I got to sit behind the wheel and not drive. And it was really trippy. In this one test, a human-sized dummy walked out onto the track, imitating a pedestrian jaywalking. <laughs> so here it comes. Let's see, so pass this trigger. Let me know. Do we see him? Do we see him? Do we see him? Yep, there he is. There he goes. Ah! <laughs> the car saw the pedestrian and slowed down to let him pass. This is just one of the many, many things that have become possible now that computers can recognize images. That's why this week I wanted to talk to Fei-Fei Li. She's a professor at Stanford and a pioneer in artificial intelligence. More than a decade ago, Fei-Fei set out to teach computers to read pictures the same way that small children learn to do this, by observing lots of objects over many years. She and her team paid researchers to tag millions of images so that computers would begin to recognize them. And by 2009, they'd built a huge data set called ImageNet. ImageNet was one of the things that helped catapult AI from the lab to industry. Already, AI is remaking sectors from transportation to agriculture to the way I unlock my phone these days just by looking at it. And Fei-Fei continues to drive the field forward. This spring, she helped launch the new Stanford Institute for Human-Centered AI, or Stanford High, as she calls it. Fei-Fei's view on AI's future is both unique and uniquely important. She's an optimist when it comes to the impact AI can have on humanity, but she's a realist, too. She believes that if we're going to benefit from it, we have to be thoughtful in how we are building it. And Fei-Fei envisions a future in which people from many fields, lawyers, philosophers, doctors, they play a hand in helping it evolve. In other words, 
you don't need a CS degree to work in AI. Here's Feifei. Feifei, when you got to college, you went to Princeton. What did you think you wanted to do at first? So I was very interested in physics because uh, even since a kid, I uh, I just loved this very magical curiosity of wow, how the world works, the science, the discovery, the you know the, the the big questions of where is the universe come from. And but one thing around the middle of my college experience, I started to notice is those great physicists at the beginning of 20th century. You know, the, the beginning of 20th century is like this era of physics, modern physics. We start to crack the structure of the atom. You know, all these uh, quantum physics was born. That, that, that just a beautiful era. But the great physicists like Einstein and Schrodinger, who are the giants, are all started asking about life towards the end of their career or life. They were interested in biology. They were interested in human intelligence. And that really caught my attention. Because in addition to trying to understand the atomic physical world, it's the biological and human world that uh, seemed to have more meaning to them towards the end. So I had a shift of interest from pure physical world, right. curiosity, to the question of intelligence. And so you came out of Princeton. What was the next academic move that you made? PhD. So I applied for a bunch of graduate schools. The reason I chose Caltech was already telling of my future career is because I found a very nice combination between a professor who now we call who does AI. At that time, we don't call AI. At that time, it's so-called AI winter. So, so the, the, the name AI was now there. He did... Uh... Stop there one second, Feifei, because I think that's actually an important thing to remember. So you were coming into this next phase of your education in the early aughts, right? Like yeah, what year yeah. was this? And if anybody is listening right now who is paying attention to you know, the world that we live in, all the talk is AI, AI, AI. Right. But if you were coming into your field in 2000... Zero AI. Zero. Zero. Because Nobody it was, talks about AI. It was this period that we now call the AI winter right. when research was just stalled. Actually, so this is where I fiercely protest. So the public calls it an AI winter, but from a research point of view, it was the most innovative, productive period of uh, research. But still, when we got to the early aughts, you did not go into the popular field. Oh, no, no, no. Absolutely not. I mean, there's no popularity. It was something I wanted to do because my curiosity took me there. Well, so fast forward, and, and we're here together this spring. You're a professor at Stanford. You have been at Stanford for a while. You for 10 spent years. 10 years. You took a break for a little while to give industry a try, and you went to Google for a while, and you're somewhat newly back. And you opened up a huge, ambitious project this spring. Right. So just past Monday, Stanford launched our uh, newly established Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence, which we abbreviate as HAI, or Stanford High. And uh, this is really the bottom line is, I think, 
we're opening a new chapter of AI. So AI has been a field of 60 years, and you just heard a tiny bit of the AI history. There's many other wonderful milestones in AI history from natural language processing, machine translation, to self-driving car, to robotics. But the past 60 years has been more or less a niche technical field. We managed to establish the foundations, we managed to establish some of the critical methodologies, and we managed to deliver some of the fruits of this research as a field into the real world and, and be seeing the commercial success or technological success. But this new chapter is entirely different. At this moment, we recognize this technology is powerful, general, and it has potentially a sweeping transformative capability and power to many industries from you know, the ones we're familiar with, tech industry, self-driving car, transportation industry, to healthcare, agriculture, government as an industry, retail, you know, everything, which means it impacts people's lives. Right. You know, every, we're already living that. And as soon as we recognize this new era, we have to be asking deeper and harder questions. Some of these questions have to do with what are the pitfalls of AI? We're already seeing algorithmic bias is a huge issue. Right. Uh, security, privacy. We're seeing automation is something that is on people's uh, collective awareness because of the potential impact on job displacement and, and labor market. So there are all these aspects of artificial intelligence that we now need to explore that exactly. go outside of the research exactly. department. Or outside of the technical research. So suddenly we realize the new chapter is AI is no longer just a computer science discipline. It's a multidisciplinary field of study that we absolutely have to invite humanists, social scientists to join us on this. For many of us, even those of us who are interested in AI, if we're paying attention to mainstream media, we might be a little scared of it. We might think it's going to take our jobs. We might have heard that it could create new jobs, but not really know what that means or whether that could apply to us. So where are the opportunities right now? Right. Let me give you some concrete examples, Jesse. So whether you're worried about AI or excited by AI, I think there are a lot of opportunities. If you are a legal scholar or lawyer thinking a lot about AI and government, there are opportunities to to either use AI technology to help uncover a lot of information from documents that would help accelerate research or processing of, you know, in, in terms of legal process. You can also look at the other side of the AI and law issue and think about policies having to do with AI. So if you're in the legal industry or business, you have an opportunity. If you are an economist or someone interested in the societal job impact of AI, there's plenty of questions uncovered and, and we need to study from organizational impact of technology to labor market impact of technology to reskilling workers and to policy, right? right. If you are a sociologist, who is thinking a lot about bias issue. Uh, 
You don't have to be technically coding AI. You can participate in an interdisciplinary way and look at AI algorithmic bias and, and propose solutions and work with AI engineers. Right. We also had an artist who uses uh, some of the fun image uh, technologies to express art in new ways because uh, AI technology can unleash some of the creativity that uh, was not able to be unleashed using previous uh, techniques. So when you begin to think about AI more broadly like this, you begin to see lots of front doors into yes, this field. Yes, absolutely. But I absolutely imagine that this becomes very interdisciplinary. And there is going to be a part of core AI technology that is still going to stay. You know, Stanford AI Lab being where most of the computer scientists and uh, machine learning scientists are, we're going to continue exploring the next generation technology, we still have a lot of unsolved problem of the technology itself. And uh, we're going to draw inspiration from neuroscience and psychology, cognitive science. But absolutely, whether it's literature or anthropology or economics or law, we see that AI will play a bigger and bigger role. And we want those experts in those fields to come and participate in this. Coming up after the break, we talk AI jobs that may surprise you. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Okay, we're back with our episode on Feifei Li. AI can seem so unapproachable. For one, it can be very technical, but there are so many ways to fashion a career in AI, no matter what your field. This week, our reporter Caroline Fairchild looks into that. Hey, Caroline. Hey, Jesse. So this week, I wanted to spend some time looking into what can you actually do to learn more about AI and potentially work with it. The reality is, if you are interested in a technical career in AI, there are some very approachable ways that you can break into that. You need some basic understanding of computer science, of course, but there are companies like Google who need more people with these skills who will give you free courses if you apply. And what do you actually learn in these courses? It's not really that complicated. Yes, the skill and the technicality of AI is complicated, but what you're learning in these courses is things like analyzing data, understanding machine learning models, things that when you demystify what it really means to work in AI makes it not as unapproachable. But what if I don't have a technical background? And that's really where this conversation gets interesting. I spoke with Phil Libin. He runs an AI incubator called All Turtles. And he told me that when AI comes into field and comes into practice, it's going to make us rethink the infrastructure behind all of our jobs. And what he means by that is that when AI is implemented into different parts of the workforce, we're going to have to think about not just how that impacts policy, but how that impacts government and how that impacts what we do every single day. Right. So, I mean, one way that I think about it is 
okay, well, that's the science. And now we're going to apply that to all of the fields, which means that we need the experts in the fields to be able to understand it, right? Right. So we need people who have sociology backgrounds, who have philosophy backgrounds, who have economic backgrounds to really tell us where we want to implement this technology and when. The example that Phil gave me is let's just think about a mailman, for example. The actual function of what a mailman does every day is deliver your mail. Could AI, in effect, replace that function? Of course. But we need thinkers, people with sociology backgrounds, philosophers, to think about, well, what are the implications of AI taking over that job? What are the things that mailmen do that have nothing to do with their actual job? Well, they're providing social stimulation to the elderly population who can't get out of their houses. They're orderly citizens who can make neighborhoods feel more safe. Are these things that AI can do? No. And if AI is not doing them, who is? So do we really want to replace that job with AI? And if you just take that one example and think of any job, that's where it gets interesting. And that's where we need people thinking about AI, not just scientists, but everyone. So that makes a lot of sense theoretically, Caroline. And what I want to know is actually are people hiring for these jobs right now? There are. There are organizations right now, think tanks, that are looking for these people and trying to solve these problems. And they're thinking about this in four main buckets, through rights and liberties, how is AI going to change human rights, through labor and automation, what parts of the job could AI do that we may or may not want them to do, bias and inclusion, which Feifei talked to us a lot about, are we asking the right questions to make sure that we're not feeding our bias into these machines, and then there's safety. We want to make sure that when AI is implemented into certain fields, it's done in a safe and regulatory way. So, you know, all the big questions. Right. All the big questions. So that leads us to you, our listeners. We want to know, how do you think AI is going to impact your job? Send us a voice memo with your observations at hellomonday at linkedin.com, and we might feature your response on next week's show. I love that idea. I would love for people listening right now, whatever it is that you do during your day, whether you're a hairdresser or a writer or a lawyer, send us a voice memo at hellomonday at linkedin.com. And let us know, what do you think is going to happen to the thing that you do? And what are you going to do to stay ahead? Thank you so much, Caroline. Thanks, Jesse. Now back to our conversation with Fei Fei Li. As somebody who came up in the science, you've also been very committed to getting more underrepresented people involved with the foundational science aspect of AI. So I want to start by asking you, what was your experience coming up as a woman and a person of color in a field that is predominantly white men? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Jesse. First of all, I think many of my women and, and fellow underrepresented minority engineers and science friends probably will tell you that what keeps us in this field is our passion, right? Like start as a kid, I was just passionate to be a scientist. So, so that is still the main experience is we love it and we find satisfaction and reward in in doing the science. But of course, we look around, we don't see many of us that are similar to us. For, for a long while, I was the only woman faculty at Stanford's AI lab. But now we're wonderful. Now we have so many younger women joining us on the faculty, so I'm very excited. But uh, that does feel lonely. So. Where are the unexpected places that you might notice it? For example, I remember I was pregnant <laughs> and going through a lot of the experience as a pregnant mother, but I was still teaching classes. I was running my lab. And uh, it's not like I can share that with anybody, <laughs> right? 
And my colleagues threw a baby shower for me for my pregnancy. On one hand, I felt extremely touched. On the other hand, I was wondering, hmm, I haven't been to any baby shower in this department. <laughs> <laughs> why am I the only one getting yeah, one? Yeah, <laughs> so why don't we do that for men? Should we do that for men? I don't even have an answer to that. So it just, you know, Such suddenly you're uh, conscious about this. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it must be also interesting for students to experience because they don't see too many pregnant AI professors teaching classes, right? So it's a... That's a great example. So as you were coming up in this field, it has always been very important to you to mentor other young women and people of color. And a couple of years ago, you started AI for All. Right. Explain what AI for All is. So first of all, I co-started. So my colleagues were Olga Rusakovsky, who is now a assistant professor at Princeton, and Dr. Rick Sommer, who is the director of pre-collegiate studies program at Stanford. What happened was five years ago, Olga and I were talking about her desire and my desire to help young women to get more involved in AI early because she was about to graduate from Stanford as a PhD student and we were experiencing the lack of representation. But I also had suddenly an epiphany and that was really important. I connected the lack of diversity in our field with another issue I was really worried about, which is the future of AI. People five years ago... It was the post-ImageNet success 2012. So, so suddenly AI is in the public conscious and people are starting to talk about it. But the, the conversations about AI were, were worrying people, right? And, and, um, it was very Terminator. Yeah. Robots. Yes. And I was thinking, how do we connect a more brighter possibility for AI's future for humanity, a more positive possibility? What went wrong there, and then what went wrong in this lack of diversity, I suddenly realized we're not educating our students and the young generation about AI in the right way. We talk about AI as if it's only a field for geeky coders, you know? So we only inspire young people who think they want to be coders and hackers, but yet there's this tremendously talented young people who want to, who have a human mission, who want to make the world a better place, whether it's environment or healthcare or policy. And of course, they're not attracted to AI because this field doesn't invite them. Nobody talks about it that way. And it happens that people with all walks of life, whether they're women or, or underrepresented minority and all this, they have a diverse interest. So we now are in this, uh, what do you call it, catch-22? or Yeah, it's a catch-22. It's in You this can't explore, you can't see the diverse interest unless those people go into it. Right, and, and then we're not even delivering the right message to invite them. So we connect this dot and we realize in order to inspire more diverse students to join AI as a field and technology, we want to talk about its human mission. We have to elevate 
its human mission and human centeredness. So we started a precursor of the AI for All, which is Stanford's summer camp for AI for a couple of years, inviting high school girls to join us to spend two years, sorry, two weeks (laughs) on campus studying AI, doing hands-on research in AI, and discussing and experiencing the human-centered topics of AI. And it was so wildly successful by 2016, applications were flying from all over the world. And there were literally students coming with their parents, staying in hotels in order to attend the Stanford camp. So what is it about the camp? Like, what, what would a young person going through that two-week camp do. So so here's how we did it. We don't assume they know anything about AI. We actually don't even assume they, they would be able to code. But we assume that they're passionate and curious. So they will be listening to different kind of lectures. AI is a AI as a field, I like to call it a salad bowl because it has many different subfields from robotics to computer vision to natural language processing and computational genomics. So they would get exposed to different areas of AI. But what's more interesting is every student belongs to a research group. And for that two weeks, they will have to learn some basic coding and participate in a research project. Uh, what is really important for us is these research project would have a human meaning. For example, self-driving car team, right? You can talk about it as a piece of gadget. They use these little uh, pots that, that can roam around. But we contextualized it into an aging population assistive technology context. So not only they need to be coding self-driving car algorithms, they would be doing that in a hypothetical scenario of getting medicines from drugstore for aging seniors. Well, of course, it's good on its face to broaden the diversity among the people who are actually creating the foundational science. But there's this other reason that I think it's particularly important in artificial intelligence, and it is connected to the idea of bias Mm -hmm. and the fact that the people making the tools will... Mm -hmm make them to some degree in their image. And so if you want tools that serve everybody, you need everybody to make them. Yes. And I think that's just really different than wanting diversity in another type of field. Because without diversity in AI, AI can't deliver on the promise for humanity. And in fact, it could become very disruptive. I agree. AI is a interesting technology that it has a lot of resemblance to humans, right? Because it's a... It goes close to decision-making and information understanding and all that. And we have to absolutely make sure we're so aware of these pitfalls and especially bias. I also have to say technology itself throughout the history of human civilization, we have made mistakes and we have to correct them, right? Medical science research, 100 years ago, clinical studies were on men, probably white men. And that means drug efficacy studies were not diverse enough to be truly fair to women and and people of color. And we have to, you know, I'm not a medical expert, but mistakes have been made and we have to correct that. Do we have the tools we need right now to act on existing algorithmic bias? Yes and no. So machine learning community is feverishly 
working on this topic. Many of my Stanford as well as machine learning community colleagues are on this. So I'm very hopeful to see that technologists are taking this so seriously. And there are statistical methodologies that are looking at debiasing data and, and all that. But there are also places that, first of all, this is still early. There are data sets that are already biased and potentially being used. So we have to get on this. And this is, you know, Stanford alone cannot do that. We don't even know where these things exist. So we have to raise the public awareness. We have to make sure everyone is on this. And uh, we have to make sure commercial companies feel the incentive to, mm -hmm. to participate in this. So there's still a lot of work. And an example of bias is just occurring to me. I know what I'm talking about when mm -hmm. I say AI bias, but mm -hmm. like, what, what would an example of bias in action be? So a very famous example is probably almost every Silicon Valley tech company has made mistakes in their image recognition algorithms of face, for example, face recognition algorithm not seeing all the humans, right? There are humans of different color skin and face detectors are not uniformly performing at the same level. So that that's a very salient example that everybody is still talks about and I want to avoid. Right. What do we need to do to make sure that these products are ethically sound so that they're serving us well? Yeah, so Jesse, that's a really good question. I think responsible technology and ethical AI is now starting to be a very important topic. And this is exactly what Stanford's HAI is hoping to do as part of our research and, and mission is to figure out what this sounds like. You know, I, I'm not a trained ethicist. I'm still learning. But I know there's a lot of nuance that we need to think about, starting from the people developing it, people leading this, decision makers, all the way to the design of the product, the algorithm, to the delivery, to the messaging, to the communication with the users. There is just, that whole pipeline has so many so many issues and touch points that we need to we need to take care of. And Stanford High is definitely calling for more such research and participation and and we will try our best, but we cannot be the only entity. I hope companies and other research institutes and governments all participate in that. We're in the era of AI that's shaping humanity's future. And I think that realization is the kind of personal sense of responsibility that we are this generation who is seeing this technology migrating from our labs to the to the world and we want to be here participating and making sure it is a benevolent force and making a positive change. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Laura Sim with reporting by Caroline Fairchild. The show is mixed by Joe DeGiorgi. Florencia Riando is head of editorial video. Dave Pond is our technical director. A special thanks this week to listener Michelle White. After listening to our Liz Gilbert episode, she sent us a voice memo about how she manages her own creative process. So one of my creative practices that I try to do is to actually limit my technology time, which sounds counterproductive because I write a lot 
but I find that when I limit my time on technology, so I don't have social media apps on my phone, I don't have notifications set so that I can focus and be creative when it's time to be creative. Our music was by Poddington Bear and Pachyderm. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. Thanks for listening. Podcasting is very relaxing. Yeah, you think so? I think so, no? I mean, I love it. The, it works the best when I forget that the mics are even here. Mm-hmm, yeah. And we just start chatting, and mm-hmm. that's a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. And then that's also when they're the most lovely to listen to, right? Yeah. Do you listen to any podcasts? Um, the thing is, most people do that when they're driving, but I bike to work. Yeah. And also, I'm blessed to bike short distance, so it's not like I have a lot of time. But I'll start listening to yours. You should know, Feifei, that not many people in the Bay Area complain that their commute is too short. (laughs) I know. I'm blessed. (laughs) I know.